after the morning Cantonese service, and for those who are new here, we do have one service up before this one. Uh, so after the first Cantonese service, one of the deacons came to me and asked me, Pastor Sam, are you awake? And, and I know why he asked. I mean, in a nice and caring way, okay? And I know why he asked. Oh, he, okay? Um, and, and, and because when I was doing the announcements, I was speaking sentences that are not really synchronized. So, so, so I, I, one, one hour really makes the difference. And I, I hope I'm not repeating the pattern here. So, from the beginning of this year, we have been talking a lot about our vision and, and mission. So just to recap, our vision is raise up generations of Christ followers and disciple makers. And if we are to achieve that, we need to commit ourselves to our mission, which is to follow and witness Christ in areas of life. However, as we have talked a lot about our vision and mission, and we spend a considerable time, amount of time in planning and strategizing, we can easily lose track of our true calling. Our true calling is about what we are becoming, not only what we are doing. We can be overly preoccupied in doing lots of things, but in the end, it is who we are in relation to God, that really matters. As a result, I have decided to offer you a sermon series that focuses on Christian virtues. And in this, I'm going to preach three sermons on our three supreme virtues, and they are faith, hope, and love. And just to make it less predictable, I'm, I'm going to start off with the virtue of love. Um, and I think at this juncture of our ministry uh, and in our church, I think we are in desperate need to listen what, God's, what God has to say about love. Love, it, it encompasses a wide range of strong and positive emotion and mental states. From the most sublime virtue, the deepest interpersonal affection to the simplest and purest form of pleasure. Love takes on many forms, from familial love between parents and children, to romantic love between lovers, to patriotic love towards one country, to material craving love towards chocolate or cheesecake. The way we express love is very much conditioned by our prevailing culture. In a materialistic society such as the one we are in, love is often expressed in a materialistic way. When it's Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, or to lesser extent, Father's Day, sorry that, those are big days for retail sales and, and restaurants. And this is, I mean, I have one, one, one really, uh, this is a true Incident. When I was in Hong Kong on Father's Day, I saw the restaurant offering 20% discount. I said, why? And they said, well, because nobody comes <laughs> without the discount. So, yeah, that's a true story. Those are big days for, for sales. But in more ancient 
society, like agricultural society, love was often expressed in service for one another. For me, growing up from a sort of traditional Chinese family in Hong Kong, I grew up listening to one saying hundreds or maybe thousands of times. This saying is like, literally, I love you, therefore, I spank you. You heard that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is, literally, this is a very common saying. But this is mainly used in parents-children relationship, not romantic relationships. So, growing up, well, in all fairness, my parents are nice. Like, they, they, they might have just beat me up, like, two times. A week. No, just joking, just joking. Not that often. Like who's tracking, right? But sometimes parents would say, our heart aches every time we hit you. And I was like, then why are you doing this? It's a lose-lose situation. And in the Western world, Canada in particular, love is increasingly redefined by our attitude towards tolerance. To love is to tolerate, or even to condone, to avoid any kind of ethical judgment. If we, if we insist on right or wrong, or black and white, then we might be labeled as not loving. In biblical Greek, there are at least five words for love, which represents different aspects of love. And these five, five words can be found in the Bible. These five words include, first, is storge, which means familial love. Parents, children, mainly. The second is filial, which means brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia was named by this word. The third is eros, which refers to romantic love. The fourth is nephia, which means hospitality love or charity love. The fifth, agape, which refers to divine sacrificial love. And in the New Testament, word that appears the most is, of course, is agape, divine, sacrificial love. Just like one of our most familiar verses, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, in which Paul says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The love here is agape in Greek. Just by looking at this verse, I wonder if you would wonder why Paul specifically points out that love is the greatest. Why? Why love is even greater than faith and hope? We know that faith is the one single factor that determines our eternal fate. And hope is, is, is related to faith, in some sense, in which we would hold on to Jesus' promise and salvation regardless of our situation in this life. So both faith and hope are irreplaceably important. So how is love even greater than faith and hope? Well, the problem here is that Paul never seems to feel like explaining to us, so we need to think a little harder. Well, first, there is a difference in the duration or longevity among these three virtues. In this life, we all need faith, hope, and love. But in what comes after this life, let's say in the new heaven and new earth, 
what we have to take by faith now will be taken by sight then. And what we hope for in this life will become a reality in the new heaven and new earth. But love in our present life will continue to be love for all eternity. Probably even deeper and more intense. So among faith, hope and love, only love exists and is necessary for both this life and in eternity. Only love will bridge here and now and there and then. Second, among faith, hope and love, only love is reciprocal or mutual between God and mankind. God loves us, so we love Him in response. But as we have faith in God, well, God doesn't need to have faith in us because He is all-knowing. He doesn't need faith to accept anything. And, and we, we need hope to cling on to the promise God has made. But God doesn't need hope in this way because God is not bound by space and time. God is present whether it's past, present, and future. So as a result, only love that we can share God's nature. Only through love that we can reflect who God really is. Therefore, now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Other than the Apostle Paul, another Apostle, John, is also well known for his emphasis on love in his episodes. Today I'll move on to share with you a familiar passage by Apostle John in his letter, which we call First John. I'm going to ask Emma, Emma, yes, Emma, to read a few verses in chapter 4 to us, a classic passage about love. Let's listen to what God has to say to us in this passage. Emma? Today's scripture comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 to 12 and 18 to 21. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love dries out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If we say we love God, yet hate a brother or sister, we are liars. For if we do not love a fellow believer whom we have seen, we cannot love God whom we have not seen. And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love one another. Thank you, Emma. After listen, listening to this passage, let's bow down and just have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for not just loving us, but also revealing to us what your love is actually uh, and how it manifests. We just pray that you will, according to your, your words, uh, open our hearts and teach us how we can love like you love us. And we pray that there are obstacles in our lives, that are, there are weaknesses in ourselves that might, 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 might try to stop us to, to, to love the agape love that you have expressed to us. 
So we just pray that you will change us, transform us by your word, by your spirit, so that we can truly love one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there is no fear in love. We love because God first loved us. These are classic verses about love. But I'm going to tell you now that the love described by John here is not that easy to understand. When we are taught to love, when we heard the Bible saying we should love, we would usually think that we need to love more. We need to improve our capacity to love, to improve on this virtue. But if you read this letter more carefully, you would discover that the love that John is talking about here is not as simple. To start off, we need to ask John a couple of questions. First, why there is no fear in love? To me, the opposite of love is more like hatred or, or bitterness. He can say there's no hatred in love, but why fear? Why is there no fear in love? If there is no fear in love, then whose love John is talking about? Did he mean the more we love, the less we will fear? Who is loving who here? Then fear. What fear is John referring to? Is this just fear in general? Or does he mean the more timid you are, the less loving you are also? That can be true, because we know that some of the worst criminals in the history were just fearless people. So what really was John trying to say here? Second question is that, John said, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And, and, and here he's talking about church. And, and then he said, he has, God has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you read through the entire letter of First John, you would find out the love that John is talking about from the beginning to the end was only about love towards fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. But we know that God loves the entire world. Jesus told us to love even our enemies. Even Paul exalted us to love our families and pray for our world leaders. But in 1 John, the entire letter only talks about love among church brothers and sisters. Isn't it too narrow focus? Or using Pastor Brian's word, just from these questions, we can kind of sense the love John talks about in this letter is not as simple or straightforward as we think it is. And if we also consider his choice of word, it, it just adds to its complexity. Since John talks about love among brothers and sisters in church, the typical word to use in such relationship, brothers and sisters, would be Filial, brotherly love. That's the word that his readers would have expected to see. John did not. He chose another word to express this love. He uses the word agape, divine, sacrificial love. 
that's not a love that we expect as mere humans to exercise. Agape is God's prerogative. But this choice of word actually gives us a big hint what John is really talking about. He is not merely talking about ethics. John is not merely telling us to be nicer or, or, or to, to, to love each other more. That's not John's point. It's because no matter how much more we become nicer to each other, how much more we, we love one another, we can never, by our own effort, to improve from our prerogative, filial love, God's prerogative, agape love. John is not talking about outgrowth enough. John is talking about a total upgrade that cannot be done by our own efforts. By ourselves, no agape love can be found. So are you following me here? I hope so. I hope my sentences are synchronizing. As we look deeper, the love that John talks about is not so simple. Take a look at this rather horrible passage in this same letter. Chapter 2, where John says, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sisters in Christ is still in the darkness. But whoever hates his brother or sisters in, is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. We might ask, why not loving or why hating brothers and sisters in Christ carries such a dreadful consequence? It says here whether you love your fellow Christians or not indicates whether you are in light or in darkness. The word in means belongs in original Greek. To John, in light is equivalent to belonging to God. In darkness, thus means belonging to Satan. So all don't or if you hate your brothers and sisters, it's not just an ethical shortcoming. If it is just an ethical shortcoming, such as greed or pride, the consequence wouldn't be so serious. You can see here, whether you love your fellow Christians or not, is directly related to your condition in relation to your salvation. Whether you belong to God or not, is reflected on whether you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not me saying this. It is John saying this. And that's why, after John warning us about the dreadful consequence of not loving our fellow Christians, he went back to talk about not how we can try harder then to love one another, but he talked about how did we get saved. Verse 12 here, he said, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, Jesus' name. Not, again, not just about ethics, but theology and salvation. It's about whether your life is rooted in the gospel message. If your faith, which I'll talk about next week, is pure and authentic, then your love towards your fellow Christians will be a proving behavior of your salvation. That's why whether you love your brothers and sisters in Christ carries such dreadful consequence because it is not just reflecting your ethics 
but your entire belief system, your status in salvation. In chapter 4, 8, John says, whoever does not love fellow Christians does not love God or does not know God because God is love. Saying here, if we do not love our brothers and sisters, John says, that we don't know God. Don't know means no relationship. The biggest error we can make theologically is not to know God. And more obvious saying is in chapter 3, in which he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who does not love remains in death. <laughs> There's no way I can overstress the, the importance of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ because it, just, it doesn't just reflect your ethics, but your condition in relation to salvation. I recognize that many people who not yet believe in Christ are also loving people. That's true. But the love found from the world is not the agape love that John is referring to. Worldly love, and I would like to call it natural love, includes love, great love. Love that may be caused by familial relationship, caused affection, affection, self-satisfaction maybe, mutual benefits, or even a wish to do charity. But those loves, natural loves, are not agape love. John made it clear to us to understand. For agape love, there is only one source. And he said it. Dear friends, let us agape love one another. For agape love comes only from God. Here you go. There's no other place apart from God that we can find or learn agape love. It's only through our genuine faith in Jesus as our Savior and that our relationship with God can be restored and we become God's children and that we find this agape love as a characteristic of this new life from God. So now you know the famous verse, we love because God first loved us. It's not about who's first and who's second here. No, this is not the point of this verse. It's not about sequence or that God is more superior than He acted before us. It is about who is the source of this love. Who is the source? Where we can get this love. It's because God loved first. He is the source. Then it becomes possible that we can also love in this agape way. Now I'm going to throw in my, my de definition of agape love. I call this, this agape love as making the most costly sacrifice for those who are least deserved. Most costly or costliest. So, repeat. Making the most costly sacrifice for those who are least deserved. Or totally undeserved. This is why, in such an unnatural way of loving, John gave us this illustration. He says, this is love, agape love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We're sinners. We are the least deserved. And He made the most costly sacrifice. He sent His Son. 
Agape love is sacrificial love. Agape love, if we are to live it, is suffering love. It is a love that forbids any calculation, whether it is about your own gain or about whether others deserve it or not. We don't calculate. This love is the most unnatural thing we can do in our life. We cannot simply learn it. This love can only come from our new, new birth in Christ as a proving characteristic of our restored relationship with God our Father. That's why John said, everyone who loves agape has been born of God and knows God. And now I'm going to revisit the question I posted earlier on why John only talks about love towards our fellow Christians. Shouldn't Christians love everyone? Of course. But shouldn't we especially love those who are not Christian yet? Of course. Again, John is not only talking about love as an ethic or virtue. If it is about just ethics and, and virtue, then the broader our love, the better. But for John, he is mainly interested to talk about love as a characteristic of our new life in Christ. He's mainly interested in behavioral theology. He's mainly concerned about whether we are in the light or in the darkness. Well, he wants us to be in the light, not darkness. That we have been born of God, not living under Satan. So to John, whether we love our fellow Christians, reflect which family we belong to. In chapter 3, he says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are, which family you belong. Anyone who does not do the right, do what is right, is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother or sister in Christ. For us, being brothers and sisters is built upon the fact that we have the same Father in heaven. We have one single same Father. So from God's perspective, our agape love towards brothers and sisters in Christ will identify us having the same Father. And thus in the same family. So if we don't love, or worse, if we hate our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we are essentially saying that one of us does not belong to God's family. And guess who would that be? God made it clear here. It is the one who does not love. It is not that we don't need to love other people. No, we need to love other people. But as a sign or proof of our identity in God's family, we must love our fellow Christians. Well, even though God has said it through John very clearly here, but we as humans are bad. You know, we like to find loopholes in God's command. Like here. God said that if we are to prove that we belong to God's family, then we must love our brothers and sisters. So when we hate a fellow Christian, we might be tempted to judge his or her behavior and conclude he or she might never have truly believed in Christ. And thus, she is not 
or he is not, in fact, a brother or sister in Christ. If she or he is not a fellow Christian, then we will not be in violation of this verse when we hate him or her. But can we do that? If we somehow attempted to deny the Christian status of a fellow brothers and sisters, consider the following two factors. First, denying the Christian status of a fellow brother or sister is in fact the most supreme level of hatred. I mean, how can you hate him? How can you hate him more? If in fact, I mean, if, if you already deny his salvation. This kind of hatred can never escape God's eyes. <coughs> Second, to judge the behavior of a fellow Christian, uh, or to judge the salvation of a fellow Christian, is also the most supreme level of judging others. Jesus said, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. If we judge our fellow Christians' salvation status, we might be the one who will be judged by God. So be careful. Now, lastly, I'm going to talk about the relationship between love and fear. John says, There is no fear in love. The perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. There's no fear in love. How do you understand this? Is there a correlation between our love and our braveness? Is John saying that the more we love, we love, the less we will fear? So on the contrary, the more fear you have, the less love you have? Is that right? But John did not specify what fear here. So does he mean any fear? There are many different kinds of fear in the world. Someone might fear spiders. Others might fear their wife. My wife fears dogs. And I fear... What do you think? My wife? No, of course not. No, no, no. No. Well, I wouldn't admit that anyway. Maybe I fear the personnel committee. I don't know. I really can't tell you what I fear, okay? Or I just won't, okay? <laughs> but that's, the, that's, that's not the point here, okay? In fact, John, John is, in his previous verse, already specified what kind of fear he is referring to in verse uh, 18. In the previous verse, 17, he said, In this way, love is made complete among us, so we will have confidence on the day of judgment. The fear in verse 18 is not just any fear. Is the fear of God's judgment or punishment. That's why it elaborates that God, uh, a fear has to do with punishment in, in verse 18. If we know that this specific fear is about judgment and punishment, then it becomes consistent to what John has always been saying in this the whole time, which is about our status in salvation. There's no fear of judgment in love. Whose love? First, first, first and foremost, is God's agape love. In God's love, fear is banished. The prodigal son, in Jesus' parable, fears the punish, punishment he would face after losing all of his portion of inheritance. 
But it is when he was embraced into his father's love that his fear is no more. But at the same time, the love here also means our love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's simply because our agape love to one another reflects or proves our status in God's family. If we agape love our fellow brothers and sisters, we know that we belong to God and have been reborn of God. And in this case, we need not any judgment. That's why John is saying here, that's what John is saying here. In love, both God's love and our agape love to one another, there is no fear of judgment, of punishment, no more. Again, John is not just encouraging us to improve our ethics. John is saying love in a theological way and related to our eternal salvation. But one word can cause great discouragement to all of us. It's the word perfect. We know that God's love is perfect. But how can any of us perfect our love for one another? Have you always agape love your brothers and sisters? Who can do that? Who can achieve that? If we all fall short of perfect love, should we start to fear of God's judgment then? But when we encounter discouragement like this in the Bible, we can always blame one thing. And it's called translation. And, and that's not a loophole I'm teaching you. Okay? It's just proper handling of biblical exegesis. The Greek word translated in NIV as perfect does not carry the meaning of being flawless. No. Most of the time, the, this Greek word is translated as either complete or finished. It does not mean without flaws. It means that it has achieved its objective or goal. The word appears twice in Acts 20. In their process, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Paul has finished the race and completed his task. It does not mean he has run his race flawlessly or he has completed his, his task flawlessly. No. But nevertheless, he finished the goal that Jesus has given him. The word perfect in John's letter means the same thing. God's love has a goal. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice of our sins. Jesus obediently finished the mission. So for us, if we are to perfect our love, it's not that we have to love flawlessly, but we need not just love in our talks. We need to put it into action as well. Only through the right actions can we achieve the goal of God's agape love. Imagine if God the Father only talks about saving sinners with the Son and the Holy Spirit, but never put that love into action, then we are living hopelessly in the fear of judgment. But God's love is complete. God's love is accomplished by Jesus' atoning sacrifice. 
Remember the definition of agape love? It's making the most costly sacrifice for those who are least deserved. So brothers and sisters, today, as we come before the Lord's table, let's remember once again that the agape love that God has given, given us, we are the least deserved. That God, God was willing to make the most costly sacrifice for us. As we take the bread, are you willing to ask God to transform you so that you can love your brothers and sisters, even if it means that you need to suffer and sacrifice? As you, top, as you take the cup, are you willing to put your love into action so that such love can be made complete and perfect in your life? Let us all pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your agape love. We are the least deserved. But you sent your Son to die in our place on the cross. And this is your agape love for us. And we must confess that we have fallen short of your agape love towards our fellow brothers and sisters and towards the world. We ask for your mercy and grace that you will keep transforming us so that our love can be miraculously transformed into an agape love that we can testify that such love exists from you and in us. May we love each other in a sacrificial way that we can tell the world this is how Jesus loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.